This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being with us this evening. And wow, do we have a ton of content to get to. Uh, I have no idea how we're going to fit it all into this show. We're going to do the best that we can. We may even have some spillover and have to do some of it tomorrow. But wow, we have a lot of show to do today. This is the Avengers Endgame of tactics, at least for the news this week. I don't know about next week. It feels like each one is is crazier than the next. But here we are. Uh, let's see. We got Wildis Mukes, the representative for the state of Alabama from District 88. He's coming up on the program after our first segment. Uh, we've got a fantastic chaplain's report planned. We have a daily dose of stupid that I think is one of the best ones that we've ever done. And of course, we've got all the greatest local news right here waiting for you. Mayor Reed is going to be the focus of part of our story today because the guy has just gone full on Barack Obama. I mean, he has completely encompassed and, and taken on the mantle of the nanny in chief. And so uh, I now he would probably take that as a compliment. I mean, a very popular, at least among his Democrat base. Well, I say that now they're saying that he didn't go far enough. And there's some people that actually don't like Obama. But, you know, I digress. Somebody that was a very popular president, at least among the Democratic base. And it looks like Mayor Reed has decided to adopt pretty much all of his policies and proposals and his method on how to enact them, which is really fascinating. Uh, but he did go full on Obama this week. And the, the reason that I say that and the thing that really reeked of that sort of Obama way of doing things was how he has handled the mask situation. So to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background for about two ish weeks now and really probably longer than that. But two weeks is really when it sort of came to prominence. Mayor Reed has been threatening or suggesting, however you want to take it, I, I would see it more as a threat, but has been suggesting that because Montgomery's uh, corona, uh, coronavirus numbers are pretty bad, and they are, not pretending that they're not, not pretending it's not a serious issue, there's a reason we continue to do our weekly coronavirus updates, and I continue to monitor it every day. I do take, take this thing extremely seriously, but I don't think that the mandatory mask have anything to do with whether or not the virus actually spreads. There's been no data to suggest that it actually does any good. The CDC and the World Health Organization still can't figure out whether or not it actually helps prevent the spread or not. Nonetheless, Mayor Reed has been beating this dead horse for a while now, and he has talked about implementing it and bringing it before the city council, which I don't think the city council should do this. But I do think that it is within the city council's jurisdiction, it is within their purview, as it were, to at least handle this. If they are going to make a citywide ordinance for this, it, of course, does need the approval of the majority of the present members at the city council. Except that's not what happened. They did propose it. Mayor Reed did bring this forward to the city council. They did have a vote, and the vote failed. Because one of the members, if I'm not mistaken, Tracy Larkin, was actually not present. So what happened is there were eight people voting, eight city council members, and it was four and four. And if you know your parliamentary procedure, a tie vote loses. Because a majority is 50% plus one. You have to have at least one vote over 50% in order to attain a majority. 
That didn't happen. It was a tie. Ergo, the ordinance did not pass. Well, just a few hours after that, Mayor Reed decided, um, screw y'all, I'll do it anyway. Granted, he didn't say it exactly like that, but that's essentially what happened. He's like, well, I tried to do it the, by the rules. I tried to do it the way that you're supposed to do it and, and follow the law and actually do go through the proper channels. But since you decided something that I don't like, ah, screw it. I'll just go ahead and put it in as an executive order. Which, by the way, is pretty much exactly what Barack Obama did with DACA. You may remember with the Deferred Action Program, the one that was supposed to allow dreamers and and allow uh, illegal immigrant children, anchor babies, that kind of thing, that were either, uh, that were, well, not anchor babies, because anchor babies would, unfortunately, for some reason, under our laws, be considered citizens. They make the argument the Constitution demands that. I would argue that it absolutely doesn't if you read the actual uh, intent behind the law and the senators that wrote it and passed it. But nonetheless... You know, don't don't get off on that subject here, at least right now. What happened with Barack Obama was essentially exactly the same thing, where for about two years, Barack Obama kept insisting that Congress do something about the Dreamers. We got to draw up some kind of legislation for the Dreamers. We got to do something to protect the Dreamers, which, by the way, is at least an issue, despite me being very hawkish when it comes to the border. I understand they, they didn't come here because of their own volition. It was something their parents did. They didn't really have any control over it. And so I at least understood that there's an argument to be made here. But when Barack Obama didn't get his way, he decided, all right, screw y'all. I have a pen and I have a phone and I'll just do it the way that I want to. I'll just ignore Congress and override all of you. And by the way, this is something that ironically, the Supreme Court in its decision the prevailing opinion which said that, oddly enough, despite the fact that every single one of them, and this is according to Robert's opinion that he wrote, uh, every single one of them are in agreement that Barack Obama did so illegally. That's in the Supreme Court decision that came out this week. That even though they, oddly enough, say that President Trump has to continue doing the DACA program, they all also conclude in their own opinion that it was somehow illegal. And so this is exactly the same action that happened with Mayor Reed. He decided, oh, we want to do it the right way. I don't have the power to unilaterally enact this mask ordinance by myself, and so we have to have the approval of city council. And city council said, nope, not going to do it. So Mayor Reed's immediate response was, well, fine, I'll do it anyway. Well, then why did you go through all the trouble of trying to get the approval from the city council? The same thing with Barack Obama. Why did you go through all the trouble of doing this through Congress? Remember that Barack Obama said multiple times, I believe the final count was like 22, 24, something like that, that he did not have the power to unilaterally do something to protect the Dreamers and then decided two years later after Congress hadn't done what he asked them to, you know what, I'm just going to decide that I do. That's exactly what he would have decided. And that's what Mayor Reed did, too. He said, well, I have a pen, and I have a phone, and uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and, and make some calls and get it done. And so that's what happened with DACA. That's exactly what Mayor Reed just did with the mask ordinance. Here's the thing. Yes, I, I disagree with the mask ordinance, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter on my commentary on how this thing was handled. How you win matters. 
You may have noticed that since President Trump took office, there have been quite a few executive orders that he has done, even some that I agree with his sentiment on, that I thought he was wrong in doing so. The way that you go about it does make a difference. You don't get to unilaterally just decide you have all the power because what happens when your guy is no longer in office? We have these things, we have these systems put in place for a reason, and if they aren't there for a reason, then why do we have them in the first place? If the mayor can unilaterally decide that he's just going to do what he wants anyway, why do we even have a city council? Seems like a massive waste of money and resources and time if the mayor just unilaterally gets to decide what the city is going to do. So, what's the po point? And when it comes to the city council, I should you know, point out that Glenn Pruitt did weasel out at the tail end of this thing and go ahead and decide to change his vote. But he did that after the vote was already taken. So the ironic thing here is, when it comes to Mayor Reed, he could have easily just played by the rules and waited another 24 hours, called an emergency session of the city council, had them all meet again, take another vote, and then his ordinance would have passed 5-3. I mean, I wouldn't have been thrilled about that. I don't like the idea of the mask ordinance, but I wouldn't be able to criticize that the mayor did something that he shouldn't have. They would have the jurisdiction to do that, even if I thought the idea was a dumb idea. But that's not what happened. Mayor Reed, if he had had an ounce of patience, would have actually gotten his way doing it the right way instead of showing himself to be the authoritarian that he is. Ultimately, like Barack Obama, this is all about control. He wants to control the people, and he will, you know, try to do it the way that he's supposed to do by waiting on the city council if that's an option, but if they tell him no, he's going to take his ball and go home and say, you know what, I'm doing what I want anyway, which defeats the purpose of having a city council. I got to tell you, if I were Glenn Pruitt, even if I somehow changed my mind on the mask thing, I believe I would have voted no just to spite Mayor Reed after that. I mean, if there's a bigger middle finger that a sitting mayor could give a city council than to just say, you know what, your vote doesn't matter, I'm doing it anyway. I don't, I don't know that there is one that's a bigger middle finger, finger to the city council than that. As a city council person, I wouldn't have changed my vote, if nothing else, just because of that. I can't believe it. But just like Barack Obama, Mayor Reed believes that the ends justifies the means, that it doesn't really matter how he gets his way as long as he gets his way. Ultimately, that's the kind of person that he is, just like Barack Obama. Now, another thing that is an aspect of this, we now know that he never really believed that the curfews that he had put on this city for over a month were actually doing any good or helping stop the spread of the coronavirus. So that curfew lasted, what, two months? And it now just got lifted, and his reasoning, his rationale for lifting it is that it's no longer needed because we have the mandatory mask ordinance. And by the way, this is something that was a talking point for him over the past week, that he was essentially using it as a bargaining token to say that, well, you know, if you guys do the mask thing that I want to, I'll just ease off on the curfew and I'll go ahead and lift that. This is so ridiculous because it shows that even Mayor Reed never believed that it was actually an effective measure in stopping the coronavirus, which is what I was arguing from the very beginning since day one. Even back when everybody was 
legitimately concerned about this thing becoming the next Spanish flu, and it was going to be another nationwide, worldwide pandemic that was going to grind everything to a halt, I still said that the curfew did more harm than good. That it wasn't going to actually do anything to stop the spread of the virus. And I said at the time that Mayor Reed doesn't believe that either. That curfews... Nine times out of ten, actually far more than nine times, 99 times out of 100, when a official, a government official, whether it's a council, whether it's an individual like Mayor Reed, when they enact a curfew, 99% of the time, it doesn't do anything to help. It is merely a political tool for politicians to say to the people, look, we're doing something. Doesn't matter that it doesn't actually help the situation that we're in, we're doing something, and that's the way that they sort of signal to the people, hey, we're at least trying to do something in this sense to solve this problem, whether it's a pandemic or a recent natural disaster or whatever. We're trying to do something in order to fix it. Because they're almost always completely useless. And they were certainly completely use, even more use than useless in this one. They were actually contributing to the problem by compressing the amount of time that people had to go out in public. So it actually made the spread of the coronavirus more likely instead of less likely. But I digress. We've already gone through all of that. That was a segment from a couple of months ago. If you want to check it out, be, feel free to do so on my channel. But nonetheless... Apparently, this is a pretty good signal that Mayor Reed knew that and believed it all along. I said at the time, Mayor Reed didn't really think that the, the, the uh, curfew was actually doing any good. He just confirmed what I predicted. Because if so, why would you use it as a bargaining token? Right now, months after, because remember when this curfew started, Montgomery, had, uh, Montgomery County and the surrounding areas had the lowest rates of transmission in the state especially in comparison to places like Birmingham, Shelby County, Mobile, Madison County. We were among the lowest in the state. And yet he enacted this curfew anyway. Now, months later, we have one of the highest uh, per, popula uh, per population transmissions in the state. And yet now he's saying, oh, we just don't need the curfew. Well, if we were trying to put all the measures in place that would help with that, wouldn't now kind of be the time to do that? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not in favor of him keeping the curfew. I thought it was a dumb idea from the beginning. But the point is, even Mayor Reed doesn't believe that, because if he did, there is absolutely no way he would let up when the virus is at its worst. And furthermore, if the curfew was, going, was doing so much to help prevent the spread of the coronavirus... How did we get to the point to where we have one of the highest rates of confirmed cases in the state? How did that happen if we had a curfew in place this whole time and many of the other cities in the Yellowhammer state didn't? It goes to show that the curfew was completely worthless and meaningless. And even though Mayor Reed knew it was meaningless and knew it was worthless, he arbitrarily holds it over people's heads so that he could get his way on the mask ordinance. This is an incredibly narcissistic, power-hungry person. I mean, if, if Mayor Reed can really look at that and go like, look, I, I know the curfew's not like actually doing anything, uh, but you know what? I'm just going to keep it on you until you give me your way, until you give me what I want, until you give me the mask ordinance. That's just going to stay here until you do what I want. It's just mind-blowing. But that's where we are. 
He promptly removed it as soon as the mask thing was given in exchange for that. And the real reason, the real explanation is he just didn't believe it in the first place. This is the explanation that he gave. This is the reason that he justified lifting the curfew. So uh, he says, and I quote, the curfew was implemented to prevent groups of people who were not abiding by social distancing guidelines from gathering in the evening and unknowingly spreading the virus. Right, because the curfew knows, or sorry, the uh, the virus knows what time of day it is. It knows that after 10 o'clock, oh, it's, it's got to infect everybody in there. But before 10 o'clock, it knows to stay back. Absolutely stupid. Uh, but anyway, he says, We believe if everyone observes our requirement to wear a face covering while in public groups of 10 or more people and follows the safety guidelines from Governor Ivey and the Alabama Department of Public Health, we will accomplish our ultimate goal and limit the spread of COVID-19. So a couple big points in that. First of all, the goal was never to stop the spread of COVID-19. The goal was always to flatten the curve. That was the purpose of the shutdowns in the first place. I've done that a thousand times on the show. I'm not going to go into super deep detail, but on its surface, just giving you the rationale, the reason that that is incorrect. So the second part of this, which really cuts to the heart of the matter, if you're trying to stop the spread, which is his stated goal in his statement, which do you think is more likely to do that? Is it scenario A, a bunch of people meeting together in the dead of night in groups of 10 or more after 10 p.m., which is supposed to stop, but Mayor Reed is saying, but as long as they're wearing masks, it's cool. That, or two or three people walking by themselves in the sunlight downtown, town, uh, down in downtown Montgomery. Which one do you think is more likely to transmit the virus? I'm going to go ahead and guess it's the one where people are in the middle of the night hanging out in groups of 10 or more in an enclosed space, not when the sun is out, outside, which this ordinance does uh, affect. If you're, if you're walking by yourself, not near anybody, just walking down the street downtown, all of a sudden you're in violation of the mask ordinance. Now, thankfully, they don't include the mask ordinance inside when you're in a restaurant, which also makes no sense because you're at far higher risk of transmission inside a restaurant than you are walking outside down the street. None of this is based on science. None of this is going to actually help stop the spread of the coronavirus. And any government official, Republican, Democrat, mayor, city council member, state representative, congressman at the U.S. level, they're idiots if they think that government mandating things is going to do anything to help that. None of these policies, shutdowns, non-shut, has shown to be effective at all in doing so. People are people and they're going to make their own decisions. The idea that the mayor thinks that he can sit in his lofty ivory tower mandating down things that will manipulate and control society is just stupid and arrogant on top of that. But it's exactly what Barack Obama would have done. You see, just like Barack Obama, Mayor Reed believes that he knows best and that the American people, well, they're really just too stupid to make their own decisions. So he, being the benevolent person that he is, has to come down and mandate to them how they ought to behave. 
I mean, the more of Mayor Reed we see, and I, and I was very open-minded about Mayor Reed. I don't really delve into local city politics as much. I like to stay in the realm of state and, and leave local stuff kind of to Kevin. And that's kind of the way that we've always done it. But man, the more I watch this guy, the more like Barack Obama he really is. And finally, and this is a an even bigger point of contention. Well, I don't know if it's a bigger point of contention. In the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't affect my life much or make much difference. It does certainly doesn't affect me as much as the mask thing, because at this point, if I do have to go outside, I'm not going to wear the mask just out of spite. But <laughs> uh, at least not outside. I probably would inside, if nothing else, to make the other people feel comfortable, because they're not the reason. They're not the reason that Mayor Reed did something dopey like this. But anyway, so with, <laughs> wow, uh, with uh, this, there's something else that the city did that was incredibly ridiculous, and I'm sure that the mayor signed off on this. I, I, it doesn't specifically mention him, but I assume that he was part of the decision-making process since the city did give its approval and it's okay. But Black Lives Matter actually painted a, I don't even know what you would call it. It's like sidewalk chalk, but it's paint. But anyway, they essentially put their name and, and a whole bunch of artwork got painted onto the the fountain plaza there in downtown Montgomery. You can see the picture of it right here. If it'll come up. Yeah, there you go. So you can see that the words Black Lives Matter are sprawled around the fountain, and it's also got some other art there, uh, like some depictions of people, whatever. Um, this is one of the most ridiculous things that I have ever seen, and it does really go to show where the city and the mayor's allegiances lie, because this was done in honor of Juneteenth, which, by the way, I think Juneteenth is a good thing. I think that we ought to celebrate it. Ilhan Omar, who is about as politically different from me as humanly possible, made a tweet on Juneteenth, uh, on Juneteenth about how it ought to be a national holiday. And I said, hey, look, Ilhan Omar actually said something I agree with. Good for her. I see no reason why Juneteenth should not be a national holiday. And I've felt this way since long before the past few weeks and everything that was going on with that turmoil. I, I, I don't see any reason why Juneteenth isn't a bigger deal. It should be. But regardless, this is not the right way to celebrate it. This is not the right way to do it. There would have been any number of events that the city could have handled it that I would have approved of and, and thought was actually a really good sign. Uh, heck, the uh, even though the city didn't sanction it and actually tried to prevent it, ironically enough, the uh, Love Matters March that I attended and observed and tried to broadcast, even though that didn't work out the way that I initially planned it to, uh, that would have been a perfect event to happen on Juneteenth. Uh, showing a unison, a reconciliation, uh, really sort of driving home the message of it, it's what's inside that matters and, and skin color is irrelevant. That should have been what we did. This is the opposite of that. And, of course, the name itself is innocuous because the words Black Lives Matter, well, who's going to disagree with that? Of course, Black Lives Matter. Now, I think that it's not the best way to message it because it should be all lives matter. Because when you say Black Lives Matter, it somewhat implies that other lives don't matter. So, for example, if I were to say white lives matter, people would automatically assume that I was some kind of racist. Or, and, you know, let's be honest, most of the people that use that expression are 
Uh, usually when that happens, it's a, a white supremacist or something like that. It should be all lives matter because color doesn't matter. Every human life is valuable. Each human life is made in the image of God. And because of that, we esteem each equally and ought to. Black Lives Matter somewhat implies that Black Lives Matter and the others do not. And so I don't agree with the messaging, but the words themselves, if you're looking clearly at the denotation, not the connotation, the denotation strictly, that Black Lives Matter, well, nobody's going to disagree with that. That's something that everybody can get on board with. The reason that there is such a disdain from people on the right, like myself, for Black Lives Matter is not only the denotation, but the connotation that comes with it, and also the organization at the national level itself, because Black Lives Matter isn't just a slogan, it is also an organized group of people that have funding, they have a website, they have local chapters. It's like the NRA, for example, another political activist group. And that's one of the things that is so ridiculous about this. Would everybody be on board with, for let's say tax day, April 15th, that the Tea Party just paints taxed enough already on the Fountain Plaza there in Montgomery. Well, I would think not. That's a public space, and you're using a public space sanctioned by the city in order to make a political statement. I would think that that would not be allowed. What about the NRA? Uh, let's say that on the let's say on the anniversary of Lexington and Concord. What if the NRA were to put National Rifle Association on the fountain? I would assume that that would not be allowed either because you're using something that is supposed to be for everybody to uh, basically promote a political organization, a political movement that has uh, backers, that, that funds particular uh, political campaigns, that takes political stances on things. That's utilizing public resources as a form of political speech, which is something that is not supposed to be done. In the same way that I thought it was wrong, for example, for the White House to light itself up with rainbow colors when the Obergefell verdict came down from the Supreme Court, this is equally wrong because you are using something that is supposed to be a public sphere for a very specific political message. And this is the reason that I have, uh, I take issue with it. So, that being said, it's not about the word itself. Because Black Lives Matter was very smart in choosing that name. I don't know if you've ever seen Parks and Rec, but there's one really funny episode where they're dealing with a cult in their town, and the cult refers to themselves as the Rationalist. And one of the characters asked, why do they call themselves the Rationalist? And the answer was, well, they wanted to name themselves that, so if anybody were opposing them or arguing against them, it would seem like they were arguing against something that was rational. And the character there just goes, that's like weirdly brilliant. So it's the same thing that Black Lives Matter does here. They're like, well, nobody could argue with Black Lives Matter. We'll just call ourselves that. Uh, th there are all kinds of organizations on the left and, and probably the right too, but there are all kinds of organizations on the left that do exactly the same thing. There are groups, for example, called the Students for Democratic, uh, a Democratic America or something like that. They're radical Marxists. 
but their name would suggest they're just in favor of democracy, which I actually take issue with democracy too, but the vast majority of people don't. And so they know that that's going to be a name that seems as though they're completely rational. Antifa is actually a great example of this. Well, why would we be against someone that is anti-fascist? I'm against fascists too. I guess we're all on the same side. No, you're not. They're radical anarchists but they are marketing themselves as something that is more agreeable than they actually are. Black Lives Matter does exactly the same thing. Just like the rationalist in Parks and Rec, they're trying to come up with a name that seems as though it would be difficult to argue against or that would make you look like the bad guy if you tried to argue against it. Because the truth is, Black Lives Matter is an anti-Christian, anti-West, radical group of Marxists. And if you don't believe me, Take a look at this graphic real quick. These are things directly from the Black Lives Matter website. We've actually shared these on the show before, but you can read these here. We affirm the lives of black and queer and trans folks, disabled folks, uh, undocumented folks. I, by the way, do find it hilarious. They, can, they constantly use the word folks since that's derived from a German word. But anyway, <laughs> uh, seems like it's somewhat in, in contradiction to their message. But anyway, undocumented folks, which, you know, have nothing to do with black lives. Uh, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum. So not just black lives, all black lives across the gender spectrum. Gay black people, trans black people, so on and so forth. Our network centers on those who have... Are, hmm, looks like there's a typo on their website. Anyway, those who have been marginalized within the black liberation movements. And then it goes on, this is a different part of the website... We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so in the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that uh, all in all the world are heterosexual unless he or she they disclose otherwise. Now, what the crap does all that have to do with Black Lives Mattering? Seems to me that they're far more interested in the gay agenda and destroying the nuclear family and, you know, a few other political talking points of the left like undocumented people, which, generally speaking, not black people. Uh, seems like they're way more concerned with that than they are actually doing anything that helps the black community. And this is what I've been saying from the very beginning. There are people that say Black Lives Matter, that use the hashtag, that even march in the streets with signs. By the way, there were people doing that, and I don't assume any ill intent. Maybe there was, I don't know. But there are people that march with that. Like I said, at the, the Love Matters rally that I went to, there were people... I disagree with them doing that, but, you know, they were peaceful and, and considerate and you didn't have any problems out of them. There are good people that do that, that have no idea that their organization that they're promoting believes that stuff. Because if you were to look at it and you were to look at public opinion, it turns out that black people actually overwhelmingly are more in, in terms of uh, conservative Christendom Black people tend to be more on that side than even the majority of white people. Black people tend to be more spiritual. They tend to be more uh, for what are considered traditional Christian values, so things like a mother and a father being the only form of marriage that's acceptable, 
And when it comes to the family, most black people are very pro-family. And so, all that stuff has nothing to do with the black community, and yet that is the kind of stuff that Black Lives Matter promotes. By the way, you don't have to take my word for it that they're radical Marxists. You can listen to the co-founders of the movement. This is a clip from one of the Black Lives co-founders, Patrice Cullors, who was one of the original people that, that came together with Black Lives Matter and organized the whole thing. This is her words. Um, I also think that it might... Um, I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are... Uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. And I think that what we really try to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. Now, I want you to notice something there. It wasn't just that she said that we're trained Marxists. She specifically said that we're very, very well versed in the ideology. We're very well versed in, in how to implement that. And we want that to be utilized by black people. They are Marxist and they want to use black people to spread Marxism. That is their plan, according to the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And by the way, you may notice that she said me and Alicia specifically. The Alicia that she's mentioning is Alicia Garza another co-founder of Black Lives Matter, who she is also asserting in that clip, is a very well-trained Marxist that wants to use that and implement that in America and use black people to spread that and to do so. These people have been pretending to be something that they are not and have gotten wide support. I mean, uh, if you're looking at public opinion polls, the, the most recent one, and this shocked me, is that Black Lives Matter has an approval rating of over 60%. So if there were an election here held today and, and Black Lives Matter was on the ticket for president, that means that Black Lives Matter would be the president of the United States by a landslide. It wouldn't even be closed. They, they'd close down the, uh, they would close down all the media predictions at like 9 p.m. because it was so clear who was going to win. And so this is where we're standing right now. Black people are being used as pawns and being duped by this organization to bring in a whole bunch of political stuff that they themselves do not agree with. That demographically as a whole, they tend to not agree with. And this is what's going on here. And another thing, they basically become nothing but a mere fundraiser and a branch of the DNC. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. This is a clip from a researcher who works at The Blaze. His name's Jason Buttrell, and you can see some of the research that he has here. So uh, he did some digging to find out where all the donations that are currently being given to Black Lives Matter, and, and man, have they been doing an awful lot of fundraising here lately in the past few weeks. And uh, this is what he came up with. When you click to donate to Black Lives Matter, it takes you to Act Blue. If donated, money goes unclaimed, Act Blue disperses that money however they want. These are their top expenditures so far in 2020. And for those of you that are listening on audio only, that list goes Bernie 2020, 
at about $186 million in donations. After that, Biden for president. After that, Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. After that, Pete Buttigieg's campaign. After that, Democratic congressional campaign, which is sort of a conglomerate of all the Democrat uh, congressional campaigns. It just sort of delves it out to people that they think it can be most used for. Uh, Amy for America. I assume that's Amy Klobuchar. Friends for Andrew Yang, again, another Democrat candidate. Democrat senator, uh, senatorial campaign, um, again, same thing as, as earlier, uh, just for the Senate instead of the House. And then Democratic National Committee, so literally about $30 million gone directly to the DNC. And then Amy Gathright for Senate, or sorry, Amy Gar uh, McGarth for Senate. Yeah. So you can see there, those are their top expenditures. That's where the money that you are donating to Black Lives Matter actually goes. They are a political activist group pretending to be a, a group that's supposed to care about Black Lives Matter. Now, I want you to also consider this. When it comes to groups like, for example, one that I'm a member of, the NRA, they do give money to politicians that they believe are going to enact their policies, and that's fine. The thing is, the members, as a general rule, they all know that. I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of people in Black Lives Matter or that use the hashtag on Twitter or that donate to Black Lives Matter and tell other people to donate, I would, I would bet my right arm that the vast majority of them have no idea that, the, that a big chunk of that money is actually going to Democrats to get them elected. I mean, they probably think it's going to like urban schools or something, but it's not. At least a big chunk of it is not. And we actually found out recently that a very, very large percentage of the donations are going to travel expenses and speaking arrangements for people in Black Lives Matter as well. And so they're actually cashing in on the movement on top of that and, and making themselves rich. But ultimately, since, you know, this has kind of been our theme for the day, like Barack Obama, Mayor Reed believes that we need to punish our political enemies and reward our friends. Because like I said earlier, do you think Mayor Reed would have signed off on the Tea Party uh, doing the same thing to the fountain with the words the Tea Party on it on April 15th? I'm going to go ahead and guess no. Would he have done the same thing for the NRA on, you know, the Bill of Rights Day or something like that? I'm going to go ahead and guess no. There are clearly political favorites that get favors done for them by the city government that would not be allowed by other political groups. And by the way, I'm not jonesing for Mayor Reed to do that stuff. I'm not saying that I want the Tea Party to be allowed to do that. I'm merely pointing out the double standard. That there are certain political groups that Mayor Reed likes and certain ones that he doesn't, and the ones that he likes get to do a whole bunch of crap that the ones that he do not that he does not like that they're not afforded. And so he's very Barack Obama-esque in that sense as well. But here's the thing that I think is most like Barack Obama about Mayor Reed. I think ultimately the thing that is one of the most defining traits of Barack Obama and Mayor Reed that sort of connect the two is that just like Barack Obama when it came to the city of Chicago, Obama just saw that city as a, a stepping stone. That was nothing but a launch pad to get him to a higher political office. And based on everything that I'm seeing, especially with the way that he interacts with the national media, 
Mayor Reed is doing exactly the same thing. Now, maybe he's going to try for something at the national level since it's kind of hard to get elected as anything statewide, at least in this, the state of Alabama. So he would probably have to try to springboard straight up to the nationals, which, by the way, is what Barack Obama did. You notice that when Barack Obama became senator and then after, what, half a term becoming a little more than half a term, uh, half a term becoming the president of the United States, you'll notice that there's still a whole bunch of poor black people in Chicago, and it's actually probably worse than it was when Barack Obama left the city of Chicago. That all that city's problems, if not more, are still there. The problem stayed, Barack Obama left. It was not something that Barack Obama was looking at fixing. When he was a community organizer for the city of Chicago, the city of Chicago was awful before Barack Obama showed up. It remained awful long after he left. And believe me, that when it comes to Mayor Reed, Montgomery is going to be exactly the same thing. He views the city of Montgomery as nothing but a springboard to further his political career. And every action that he's taken shows that that's kind of the way that he sees it. Just like Barack Obama saw Chicago... That's what Montgomery is to Mayor Reed. Now, I don't think that Mayor Reed's going to be president of the United States. I don't think that he's nearly as eloquent or as clever as Barack Obama, and I don't think that we could see him get propelled to any real national fame. That's just my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, we could see Mayor Reed winding up, you know, representing a different state or something like that. I don't know. But either way, they still view the city that they're in the same way as just a launching pad to get them to where they actually want to go. They're not really all that interested in doing things for the people of the city. They're just trying to move up and move out. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way that it is. All right, so we have covered a ton of ground here, but we've got even more to cover because coming up in just a minute, Will Dismukes, who has found himself embroiled in a controversy over the Confederate statues, Confederate monuments, and his stance on that, he has something to say about that, and that's coming up right after this break. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us through the break. So, I actually, I apologize. I shouldn't have promoted it when I didn't realize what time it was. We're a little bit late today, so we're going to have to postpone the Will Dismukes interview until tomorrow. That is coming up. I promise we'll get it done tomorrow. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have promoted it when I, I didn't realize how late we already were in the show. But don't worry. It's coming up. I promise we will have it for you. Look forward to it in the future and be sure to tune in tomorrow as a result of that. All right, that being said, let's go ahead and go to our daily dose of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's daily dose of stupid, uh, you may be sitting there and thinking, okay, well, C Caleb's going to do the daily dose of stupid, and he has a soft spot in his heart for the stupidity of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so... This one's got to be on AOC congratulating China on uh, buying up a whole bunch of tickets and sabotaging Trump's rally, despite the fact that if that actually had happened, and there's still some debate as to whether that's what actually happened or not, um, that that would essentially mean a whole bunch of Chinese people donating to Trump's campaign <laughs> uh, by buying the tickets. But no, that's that's actually not 
what I'm going to be discussing. You're like, okay, well, if that's the case, then it's got to be Joe Biden having no freaking idea what Juneteenth is. That when asked a question about it, he responds with something about the massacre at Black Wall Street, which is not what Juneteenth is at all, not even close. It's got to be that, right? No, actually, it's not that either. For any of you that uh, really know me, you know that when there's something talked about about the Bible and it's incredibly stupid, I got to jump to that no matter what else is going on in the news. And that is a case of what has happened today. Because Sean King, one of the most famous white, white guys <laughs> in the country, because if you, if you know Sean King, you know he pretends to be black even though he's very clearly white. Both of his parents are white. You can actually see pictures of him as a kid with red hair. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, Sean King, who pretends to be a black guy but isn't, uh, he's apparently also pretending to be something that he's not on top of pretending to be a black person when he's not. He's also pretending to be a theologian when he's not, trying to give some explanation about Jesus. And this whole thing erupted because he was engaged in a discussion. He was engaged in a discussion about the Gospels and different statues about Jesus and, and people depicting Jesus as white and things like paintings and stained glass windows and statues and, and so forth. And uh, I, I will say I welcome Sean King uh, into the theological realm because now being a theologian like myself, he may be the only one that's as white as I am. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, he, he jumps into this realm very clearly having very little, if any, knowledge about the actual biblical narrative, and that shows off in the tweets where he's arguing that we should just be getting rid of all the statues. So when we were talking about this back in 2015 and having this discussion and saying, okay, where does it end? Where does this whole thing stop? Are we going to be tearing down statues of George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson? And they said, no, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. It's not going to go to that extreme. And of course it did. And we also said things, well, are you going to be coming after people that were even just good white people that, that were trying to, uh, I mean, actually Jefferson and Thomas also tried to end slavery as well, but they ignore that little tidbit. Uh, what about people that actually ended slavery like, Abraham Lincoln. No, that's insane. We would never want to take down statues of, of Abraham Lincoln. Well, now we didn't even think about this one, guys. I think the conservatives really dropped the ball here because we never even contemplated they would be saying, hey, let's rip down all the statues of Jesus. I mean, this really shouldn't surprise us. A bunch of communist Marxists they tend to be pretty antithetical to the church. If you know anything about the history of, example, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, they always wind up doing this eventually. But the point is, at least right here, that they've decided, yeah, we, we just need to tear down the statues of Jesus. And Sean King sort of articulating this point in these tweets. So, so here's famous white guy Sean King. And in this tweet, he says... Yes, I think the statues of white European uh, they claim is Jesus should also come down. They are a form of white supremacy, always have been. In the Bible, when the family of Jesus wanted to hide and blend in, guess where they went? All caps. Egypt! Not Denmark. Tear them down. <laughs> so that's, that's Sean King's take on whether or not they should be tearing down statues of Jesus Here's the thing that I find a little odd about this. Granted, 
I'm not really a fan of the depictions of Jesus in statues and paintings and, and that kind of thing in churches anyway. If you were to go to my church, for example, and this isn't something that we hold as though that's being evil, it's just kind of dangerous that you could sort of accidentally wander into idol worship and, and a graven image. Not that that's necessarily what it is, but just there's that temptation there, and as human beings, uh, it's, it's just kind of thought of as better to not have some of those things. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily what these churches are doing. And so, granted, I've probably seen far less paintings and stained glass windows and statues of Jesus than the average Christian, especially less than, like, for example, Catholics or Lutherans that have a, an awful lot of that stuff in their churches. But nonetheless, I have seen some. And uh, usually they don't have a skin color because statues don't have skin. In the same way that the statue at the Fountain Plaza there in downtown Montgomery where Rosa Parks stood, they have a little statue of Rosa Parks. And it's made of bronze or brass or something. And uh, it's not black. It doesn't look anything like her skin tone because statues tend to be made out of a material and they don't like paint over the statue afterward to make it look like the person's skin tone. So... That's one of my big questions is, with a lot of these statues, how does he even know that they're white? Like, if it's just a statue of traditional Jesus, like, you know, the Rio Grande statue or something like that, I, I can't tell what Jesus' skin color is supposed to be because it's just a statue made out of a material. Now, in that particular example, it happens to be white and even whiter than I am because it's like some kind of marble or something. But so is his hair, and so is his clothes, and his hands, and everything else. Like, it's not meant to depict a skin tone. Just like that bronze statue of Rosa Parks is not supposed to be depicting a certain skin tone. And so this is a really weird case to make, the statues, because very few of the statues that I've seen, you could even really sort of decipher what the race of the person being depicted is even is. You certainly wouldn't be able to tell, for example, that Rosa Parks is black if you didn't know who she was and just looked at that statue that's there in the city, but I don't think that's wrong to do. That's just how statues are. But nonetheless, this is the case that he tries to make. But where I really get tickled is where he's trying to make biblical points and, and trying to delve into the scripture and what they say. He's like, where, where did they go when they wanted to blend in? They went to Egypt. Okay, a couple reasons why that's wrong. First of all, they weren't going there to blend in. That was not the purpose of going there. See, the thing is, Herod was not looking specifically for Mary and Joseph and a baby named Jesus. He was killing people en masse. And so when they fled, where they fled really didn't matter as long as they were not in Judea. Herod's rule killed all male children of the Jews under the age of two. It was indiscriminate. He wasn't specifically looking for Joseph and looking for Mary and looking for baby Jesus. He was just trying to destroy everybody because he didn't know where they were. And so it really didn't matter where they fled to. I don't know exactly what the status of Denmark would have been in the first century, but if they had, had fled to Denmark, even though that would have been a really long ways away, even if they had gone to Denmark and then come back, the result would have been exactly the same. They weren't blending in. They were just going to a jurisdiction outside of Herod's uh, influence and power, and really anywhere would have sufficed. 
where they were going didn't matter as long as they were not in Judea until that time had passed and Herod had died off and was no longer looking to, to kill Jesus. That's all that was happening there. The color of the people that they went to to stay with made absolutely no difference in that scenario whatsoever. So while it's probably true, and I've said this on my program many times, that the depictions of Jesus that are usually given with him as a, uh, a, a white guy with flowing locks of hair and a long beard and, and into this incredibly clean white robe for a dude that spent all his time on the road walking around in desert country, uh, those aren't correct. I'm not claiming that they are, but Sean King's rationale is so bad that you've just got to point it out. The thing is, only an imbecile could claim that the depictions of a Jesus statue are for white supremacy. If there was any, the entirety of Western culture that is built on the idea that all men are created equal, specifically here in America, but even more broadly, that is a biblical Jesus idea. A person that is following the teachings of Christ cannot possibly be a white supremacist. Those are mutually exclusive positions. You either are a white supremacist or you are a follower of Jesus. Now, you could be neither of those things, but you certainly can't be both of those things at once. And so <laughs> the idea that people are erecting giant Jesus statues and that's a form of white supremacy is just laughable. I mean, I'm sure that not every single person that put up a Jesus statue or has a depiction of Jesus is necessarily a good person or necessarily above reproach. I'm not suggesting that at all. But the idea that the world with lots of Jesus statues and when a person is putting up a Jesus statue, they're, they're doing so because of white supremacy is just stupid. Anyway, so here's a, another clip, a follow-up tweet of Sean King trying to make this case again with stainless, uh, sorry, uh, stained glass windows and, and the like that also show this depiction of the quote-unquote European Jesus. And he says there, yes, all murals and stained glass windows of white Jesus and his European mother and their white friend should also come down. They are gr a gross form of white supremacy created as tools of oppression, racist propaganda. Man, this guy can't even speak in full sentences. They should all come down. So Sean King there trying to explain. Now, I have to at least say that depictions of murals and stained glass windows, at least you can kind of tell what a person's race is when you do that, because there is some skin tone that goes into that, and at least in some works of art. And so that does make a little more sense than the statues. But nonetheless, when it comes to this, this is so ridiculous. Like I've said, Jesus probably had more of an olive skin tone, probably closer to what we would see as, as modern Arabs, probably a little bit lighter skin, but not by much. Something, you know, kind of a Mediterranean look. But does anybody really believe that the reason that Jesus is often depicted as a white guy is because of some kind of white oppression? Or is it more likely that a lot of the art that cropped up that became popular for depicting Jesus happened, you know, Renaissance to pre-Renaissance and mostly took place by and large in Europe? That's the reason. From the art of the Middle Ages and then fast-forwarding into the Renaissance, the classical period, that kind of thing, a lot of those depictions that were popularized and became what most people thought of when they thought of a depiction of Jesus 
that came from then. It wasn't like a bunch of Italians got together and was like, hey, you know what we should do? We should paint Jesus as white to keep the black guys down. They were living in Italy in the 1400s. And painters normally, not always, but normally when they are going to paint something, what do they use? Models. So they'll take a person, have him sit there and act as a stand-in for a famous person. They model what that person looks like after the person that they get as the model. Yes, it's a depiction of Jesus Christ, but they were probably modeling that off of people that lived in their village, in their town, friends of theirs, that kind of thing. Well, what were those people going to look like? Well, at that time in Italy, probably not an Arab. Jesus looks Italian because Italians painted him that way. Because that was what they were used to. That was the kind of people that they had around. Those were the kinds of things that they used as inspiration. They weren't trying to go out of their way to make him whiter than he actually was. These guys weren't historians. Believe me, I wish that we did a better job of depicting Jesus more closely to historically what he actually looked like. That's something that I've called for in the past. But the idea that not doing so, and the reason that we have the misconception of Jesus as being someone of a lighter skin tone than he probably was, that didn't crop up as a tool of the patriarchy. That was just happenstance. And Sean King trying to attribute this kind of sinister evil motive where none is present is really primarily the result of the fact that he is a dedicated radical Marxist that hates Christianity. They want to secularize the world, and getting rid of all the Jesus statues and murals would be a pretty fast way to at least start along those lines. But it's it's just absurd that he thinks that this is a tool of oppression when it was really more likely just they painted people that looked like the people that they saw on the street every day. Many of the Italian artists probably never even seen an Arab individual and had no idea what they would have looked like. And so it's just, it's so stupid. But I guess what this does show is there is no stopping point. So it wasn't that they were going to tear down all the Confederate statues, get rid of people like Lee, even though Lee was an abolitionist, get rid of people like Stonewall Jackson, even though there's pretty good evidence that Stonewall Jackson was not a racist, but just get rid of everything, everything involved with the Confederacy. And then, well, okay, that's not enough. We'll get rid of anybody that owned slaves, even if they freed their slaves and advocated for everyone else freeing their slaves, like Thomas Jefferson, like George Washington. And okay, we'll just also get rid of like Teddy Roosevelt and Ulysses S. Grant, who actually fought to free the slaves. And, uh, you know, people like Christopher Columbus, just basically, it seems as though the only thing that they want to get rid of are just statues in general. Apparently just statues are bad. Because here are statues depicting an actual perfect man that his entire life never advocated any person, regardless of their race, taking advantage of anyone. A guy that actually builds bridges across racial lines, especially when it came to people like the Gentiles and the Samaritans. This is the man whose philosophy influenced the whole of Western culture and the idea that human beings were a single race of individuals created by a loving father and ought to treat one another with dignity and respect. The whole of Western culture is built on that idea, and yeah, we didn't always get it right, and it took us a long time to get to where we are, but Jesus is the origin of all that, and they want to tear his statues down now. Nobody 
with any sense of rationale left in their body could claim that this is not about just destroying tradition and destroying history at this point if they're wanting to get rid of Jesus. Look, if Sean King finds the white depictions of Jesus, and there are several of them, I'm not pretending that there aren't, but if he finds those so offensive, maybe he should just do exactly the same thing that he does every single morning when he walks into his bathroom and looks in the mirror. Sees a white person and pretends that they are a black guy. Seems to me that would solve all the problems, that Sean King could just pretend Jesus, even though he's depicted as white, is black, just like he is white and pretends that he's black. And that would solve all the problems. Sean King's happy, everybody else is happy. I don't know. It seems like a good solution to me. But here's the bottom line. And this is more important than anything else that I have said in the Daily Dose of Stupid up till this point. What did Jesus actually look like? I don't care. Not at all. Not one iota. If I saw an actual photograph of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't care what it looked like. The only thing that the Bible deems important enough to include in the Gospels, well, actually not in the Gospels, this is in a different passage of Scripture, but from people that actually knew him, the only thing that the Bible sees important to include in the canon in regards to Jesus' appearance is that he was not somebody that was particularly attractive. That's it. That's all the description that we're given. That's all the description that we're ne- that is needed. Why? Because it teaches a theological truth that the way Jesus looked didn't matter. People weren't drawn to him because he looked good. People weren't drawn to him for the same reason that they were, for example, drawn to Saul in the Old Testament because he was very tall and commanding and had that sort of leadership presence and was an attractive individual. That's not why they were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn to him because of who he was. That's the message that everybody is missing here. Can we please just ignore the skin tone? I don't care what Jesus' skin looked like. It is immaterial to me. He could be extremely dark or look like an Asian or a Native American or Mediterranean or a white guy. It doesn't matter. What does matter is who he was and what he did. What does matter is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was willing to sacrifice his own life to give you forgiveness of your sins. That's the only thing that counts in this discussion. And so, what we're arguing over is dumb. The people closest to him, the gospel writers, saw it as ridiculous to even entertain the thought of spending some of the precious time in the gospels talking about what Jesus looked like. The only thing that mattered to them is the only thing that ought to matter to us, which is who Jesus Christ was and what he did for us. What he looks like doesn't matter. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. I gotta tell you, after that Daily Dose of Stupid, I kind of feel like I just got done with The Chaplain's Report. I really did almost say, uh, stay the course, friends, at the end of that. (laughs) 
But we, we actually do have a chaplain's report today, and it is continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. Just to sort of reset the table, because I know that we had to stray away from that series last uh, week. So just to give you an idea of where we are in this story, Israel is already camped and they are making ready the battle for the Philistines. So they're getting ready to go out and fight the Philistines, to fend them off. They've had some success recently, but they've also had some failures. The Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees, the Philistines have been a thorn in their side this whole time. And so uh, the camp is gathered, Israel is gathered, they're getting ready to go. And that's really where this scene unfolds here in 1 Samuel, where Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king, so Prince Jonathan, sneaks away for a little bit, really without anybody except for his armor bearer noticing. And that's where we join the narrative right here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 6 through 10. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, talking about the Philistines there, of course, Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and here I am with you according to you, according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. I'm a really, really big fan of the book of First and Second Samuel. It's part of the reason I decided to do this series in the first place is because there is so much good contained within these books of the Bible. But there's so much focus on Samuel and David and Saul that sometimes I think we forget some of the minor characters. And, and I don't even know if I consider Jonathan a minor character because he, he plays a pretty instrumental role in this story. But sometimes we ignore Jonathan. And when you read that passage of Scripture, you just kind of have to take a step back and go, man, Jonathan had some faith. Jonathan's not just a plot device. He's not just David's best friend that also happens to be the son of the king that wants to kill him, although that does create quite a bit of intrigue. Jonathan's a pretty interesting character in his own right, and verses like this really remind us of that that he's not just a plot device for the writer of 1 Samuel. He plays an integral role in the story, and he is a pretty interesting servant of God, really on his own. And this really depicts that. Because you look at that level of faith. You look at the way that Jonathan looks at the situation, assesses it, and moves forward. you got to respect Jonathan for what he did there. Look back at it again there, especially in verse 6, where Jonathan is saying, look, we're going to go up and we're going to go right into the base camp of our enemies. And the reason that he gives, the rationale that he gives for why that is appropriate is he said, God's not restricted by saving us by many or a few. Whoa. What Jonathan is saying there is... Well, I mean, God certainly can save us. He certainly can, you know, bring forth a massive army and, and take out the Philistines. 
or he could just save us by diplomacy. He could save us by just me and you going up there and negotiating something. So in other words, he's saying, I have faith in God's power. God can do whatever he wants. God has the ultimate authority here. He is already, and he says this later down in, in that same passage, God has already delivered them into our hands. And so maybe he's going to do it through our armies, but there's also a chance that he could do it through me, through diplomacy and just going up and talking to them. So I will make myself the instrument here. I will put myself in the right place at the right time to be used by God as he sees fit. That's somebody that's really dedicated to the Lord. And I want you to keep this in mind, too. Jonathan's not just some random representative. He's not some random advisor to the king or a governor or something. He's the prince. He is King Saul's son, which means he would be a very, very appetizing target for the Philistine army. If he's walking into their garrison, all they would have to do is capture him and then use him as leverage against Saul. And Jonathan's not an idiot. He knows that. But he has such confidence that God is going to deliver Israel that he says, I want to put my place in the right place at the right. I want to put myself in the right place at the right time to be used by God as he sees fit. And we're going to go ahead and do this. And his armor bearer is so impressed by this. He's like, all right, well, do whatever you want. And uh, I will follow you. So his armor bearer had quite a bit of faith in Jonathan and in God as well. But you have to also remember that that's even more courageous and even more amazing when you consider the scenario. Because not only is he the prince of the enemy to these Philistines, but they were Philistines. It's not like he's fighting a war like the, the British and the Americans where both sides are civilized and they might negotiate a, a soldier return or something like that. There was no Geneva Convention to protect Jonathan from being tortured or killed or worse. I mean, keep in mind that we read just chapters earlier in 1 Samuel about the Philistines, this same group of people taking people and decapitating them and displaying their heads as trophies. I mean, all kinds of horrible things. And Jonathan knows all this. And he is so incredibly fearless because he has complete and utter confidence that God is going to deliver him that he does this anyway. That's an incredibly impressive young man. And frankly, it's easy to see why he and David got along so well, because they thought the same way. They had the same priorities, and they had a very similar faith in God. Because doesn't this sound like something David would do? Because i got to tell you, to me, this sounds almost like they, they switched the names here and accidentally said Jonathan instead of David. This is a very David-esque thing to do. And so it's, it's not hard to see why they became such good friends, because he is choosing to walk into the belly of the beast as Israel's representative and walks with no fear. That's an impressive thing to do and something that I hope to emulate in my own life. That when he says, the Lord has already delivered our enemies into our hands, we don't have to worry about it, we will be fine, and I'm going to make sure that I'm in the right place to do what God wants me to do, that's something that we should want every single day of our lives. That's something that we should try to implement. We should walk through life going, you know what? I need to be in the right place to do what God wants me to do. I need to put myself in positions to where God can use me. And now, I won't spoil it because we'll be going over that tomorrow, but that's exactly what God did. 
God used Jonathan and his courage and his fearlessness. He used Jonathan in a way to bring about the change that his father, I don't know, maybe could have. Maybe they would have won the battle. But God's power was so absolute, and God, because he he involves himself in the lives of men through providence, he uses Jonathan as his tool to do the right thing because of his faithfulness, because of his courage. And the thing is, we should all be just as willing as Jonathan to be instruments in God's plan as all as well. And sometimes that takes different forms. Sometimes it's just putting ourselves in the way of somebody so that we can teach them the gospel. Sometimes it's putting ourselves out there and actually preaching to, to the public. Uh, sometimes it's with other Christians. Sometimes it's with a friend that we know is, is having some trouble or struggling with something and putting ourselves in a position to where we're available to be used as God's instrument to keep them on the right path. So there's uh, millions and millions of different possibilities and ways that we can do this. But the point is, Jonathan made a conscious effort to do so. He believed that the battle was already decided, the battle was already won, that God was going to win anyway. Just let me be used as a tool in God's ultimate plan on that. That's something that we should be striving for as well. So as we go throughout this week, as we're starting here, let us make it a point to put ourselves in positions to be used by God as an instrument of his will, just like Jonathan did. And sometimes it's going to take some real courage. Sometimes it's going to put us in positions that we will not be comfortable in, just like Jonathan was doing here. But ultimately, it's worth it. And ultimately, that kind of faith is going to lead us to be a person like Jonathan was. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.